I think when you're not coming from a technology side and always looking at efficiencies and how can you automate certain things, that team became very reactive and defensive on our data and our customers start pointing at little things that were not perfect versus talking about the greater value they're getting. We didn't, we didn't know that there was a lot of manual work in the early days being done by one person. <laughs> That's when we hit that critical mass of getting more customers to that one person that was manipulating our data left. And that could have killed us. I'm Stephanie Lapierre, the founder and CEO at Tailbook. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart. And today, how Stephanie Lapierre is delivering a supplier data foundation to unify your systems and optimize your suppliers. All this and more on Code Story. Stephanie Lapierre is originally from Quebec, so English is her second language. She was a ski instructor in Whistler and followed up going to university studying English. She grew up with an inspirational grandmother who was a forced entrepreneur involved in the community and a fantastic mother and family member. Her mom has a similar story, and Stephanie pulls a lot of influence from both of these ladies. While progressing through her career, Stephanie had an idea around enhanced supplier data that she couldn't shake. After a small maternal break to have her third daughter, she stepped back into the startup ring to build a tool around dynamic supplier data. This is the creation story of Tealbook. What we do is we use technology, mostly uh, machine learning, to go and find data everywhere we can to solve a problem, which is supplier information that enterprise need to operate their business. And so any information that portrays to a B2B supplier, so who's a B2B supplier versus a hair salon, right? What do the supplier do? So we want to know their goods and services at a pretty detailed level, how they should be categorized so that our customers can understand and, and segment their spend. We want to know where they're physically located, where they do business, who's most similar to them. So we build algorithms that enable the search engine and understand where there's maybe some consolidation opportunities or, or introducing more suppliers in certain categories. We're really, really good at certification. And so we find certificates in hundreds now of different data sources. And all of this is to enable the profile of a company that sells into the enterprise to be automated. And so we want to automate the collection, the enrichment of the information about that company and the distribution of that data into the enterprise systems that need the same information. And when you're looking at the buy side, so supply chain procurement, There's a lot of different systems from the ERP to your source to pay, to your contract management system, to your third-party risk management system, to your diversity portal, to your sustainability portal. <laughs> the list keeps going on. And often you have multiple instance to acquisition of, of the same software. All of these software require supplier information. And 99% of them require the supplier to actually come to a portal to put their information in a portal, sometimes in the same system of the same customers in different portals. So it's a, it's a real, portal fatigue is a real thing. And what that does is our customers then, if the suppliers are not coming to the portal, 
then they have systems that don't have good data. And even if the supplier come to the portal, they may not come back enough to maintain the information at the speed and scale of what's happening in the market. And so the automation of that, that data enables our customers to take a large master data. So our clients may have 5,000 suppliers to 150,000 suppliers globally. And we turn the light on to those companies. And so they can look at 100% of the suppliers they do business with. They'll know the ones that they're spending millions and millions of dollars fairly well. They still have to collect information, so that helps. But all the little ones that they spend even $1,000 with when you add them all up, this is where often there's opportunities for innovation. There's also sometimes the greatest risk. There's also opportunities to drive your sustainability or diversity spend goals. You know, turning that light on is, is critical for our customers to get more visibility. And then they can take our data, they can distribute it into their software so that the software gets more value because now you've got better data to get the promised ROI. And then that continuous visibility of tracking um, their supplier chain, their supplier base, the information, the, the market conditions around those suppliers so that they can be much more resilient, take, you know, much more agile. And what we know in the last two years is how important it is to have contingent suppliers understanding risk, understanding localization, et cetera. So it's not an easy story to tell. And as you can imagine, when I was fundraising in the early days, that was really hard because we're like, are you a SaaS company? No. Are you a data company? Yes. What a SaaS, you know, but get, the data gets better over time. I think now uh, the understanding of a data platform um, is much more, you know, it's much more mainstream, which makes it easier. Well, let's dive into the MVP. So that first product you built, how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? Well, I'm not a technologist, so I, I really saw the business opportunity. And then I designed it in my head before launching Tailbook, maybe three years before I hired an architect and a designer to take it out of my head and put it on paper, mostly because I wanted to start showing customers and getting their feedback. And then I got pregnant with my third daughter and I knew I couldn't do Tailbook and, and have a baby at the same time. And so I paused it and then it's the urge that kept bringing me back. And I have a million ideas a day for businesses, but this one, I just couldn't, I couldn't fight. Like I, I tried to poke holes at it, but it was just so obvious that this was the way forward. What I didn't know is how to build it. Like how, you know, the pieces of the puzzle to get to that end state. And so originally I, I outsourced a company out of Montreal. They were a startup and they, they very much acted like the, the owner there was sort of my CTO for the first year and a half, two years. And I built the first MVP with them. And so design it very much as a software platform. And we started focusing on suppliers first. Because I had the consulting business, I started to sell to suppliers a membership where they could come in, put their information in a profile that was then going to be accessed to all the Matchbook customers. And I was selling these membership for $5,000 to $10,000. And so I, I, every month, if I could sell five membership for $5,000, I could pay my developers. <laughs> and so I was on the phone 18 hours a day. And I made a million dollars selling these membership. What ended up happening is that suddenly we met this very, I guess, disruptive chief procurement officer. And when he saw Tailbook, he loved it. He called it sort of the LinkedIn of suppliers. But he said, I need you to be prime time and you're not prime time yet. You know, I heard that. I was like, what, what does it mean to be prime time? What does it take to be prime time? It's like, I need, you know, you have a few thousand suppliers. I need you to have like, 500,000 suppliers. 
And over a weekend, they were looking, how do we bring 500,000 suppliers? Because we were selling one supplier at the time. And so we uh, ended up deciding to partner with a data partner at the time, which ended up not working out in the long term, but uh, just to get access to data on businesses. And I came back, I went to Boston that morning from Toronto and I met the, the chief procurement officer and this company gave us 1.8 million suppliers. I looked at him, I said, okay, I've got 1.8 million suppliers. Am I, am I ready? Am I prime time? And he laughed so hard. And what he was trying to achieve was to introduce more suppliers into sourcing event to drive competitiveness and drive savings. What was the big change for us is when I met my first CTO, he had worked at Ariba SAP for 10 years. And so he, he knew the space and he had built the supplier network. And then he went to study big data, machine learning, and worked at Google and Shanga. And when we met, he's like, I think there's a better way instead of having suppliers coming to a portal and buying data from someone else, which is crappy data that we can't even use anyways, why don't we use ML to start seeding the data ourselves? And this was like, my mind was blown away. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> we can do this? And he's like, yeah. And it was still six years ago, if you think machine learning learning was still fairly new and it was definitely not known to the side of the enterprise. A lot of the investment were happening more on the revenue side. He came on board. We were able to raise uh, the first institutional round and we rebuilt Tailbook at the time, machine learning enabled and start seeding data. And we relaunched that platform eight months later with 600,000 supplier profiles. That was sort of where we start focusing on what is a B2B company and, and understanding what they do and turn down to natural language tags. You know, we were selling this platform mostly focused on finding suppliers because if we had enough information, it didn't need to be perfect, but if we had enough information, we could point to companies that are most similar to one another. And we made money, we sold to large companies, but the data was not high quality enough to be a data company. What we ended up doing, I met my now chief revenue and strategy officer. He came from the space and he's the one who called me three, just over three years ago and said, if you're building what I think you're building, which is this data, this autonomous way to enrich supplier data, it is the one cause of failure of these large scale, you know, implementation of these systems. And frankly, the, the failure of digital transformation. So you're sitting on a gold mine, but when I go to your website, you look like a software company. And that perked my attention. I flew to New York to meet with him. We spent three months really just deciding if this was a good fit. And he left a company that, you know, with a big salary, uh, although he came from startup, so he was eager to get back into it, but he took a chance and, and found out a month later that his wife was pregnant, or maybe even two weeks later, which I don't know that he would have made that, that decision, you know, a few weeks after, but he came on board and we repositioned Tailbook as the supplier data foundation that powers the buy side digital enterprise. And we, we, we use the analogy of Zoom Info as being the aggregator of contact information and, and, and data for the sales side, distributing that data into CRMs that are cloud-based, but you know, cloud-based CRM doesn't mean good data. So Zoom Info was able to enrich that data to produce better business development outcomes. And then they also invested in an interface to drive you know, sales and marketing to Zoom Info especially on activities that are happening outside of the CRM. And so that's really how Tailbook is positioned. And so that click with investors, I think it clicked with the market. And a lot of our customers that now experience the failure of these large scale implementation and realizing that, hey, I, you know, the, 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 the 
crappy master data, the garbage in, garbage out, the portal potties, all of that, we can't accept that anymore. And so that's when we start seeing a lot more traction. And uh, for the last three years, it's been pretty fast growth. So from that point, right, where you started to get the traction, your product, you know, is, is sort of taking off. You've decided some big decisions around being a data platform. How did you progress it from there and mature it? And I think, you know, put that question in a box. I'm looking for how you built your roadmap and how you decided, okay, now this thing is the next most important thing to build or address with Tealbook. Customers want you to be a software company because the software is tangible, right? It's like buying a house. You're not buying a house with a foundation, but if you don't have the foundation, the software or the house will, will cripple, but they see and they can touch and they can workflow software. And so it's always been the challenge for us is moving away from customers wanting us to build RFP tools and contract management solutions within our platform. And I'd say in the last three years, like it was definitely at the beginning product lived within R and D and even I had very little visibility into a roadmap. It was hard to see. It was not documented because we were moving so fast, learning so fast. When we closed series a, which was a year and a half ago, we brought in a VP of product and her first mandate was to decouple product out of R and D and put our priorities in one slide, like where we need to be just this data platform that's integrated to all system and where we are today, which was, you know, a platform that had a lot of data and all of the data was exposed in the UI, the good, the bad, you know, and then we had to all agree on the priority and agree on how we're going to build this and the use cases as we built. And I said, that's been still hard with product. It's very easy to say, I'm going to buy this data from this other provider. I'm going to build a survey for suppliers. It's not the first approach. The first approach is always looking for AI, ML enabled ways to go after data because that increases our moat. It gives us more uh, proprietary data set that we can increase the value of the company and the value to our customers. And so that's an ongoing journey. We do have a new VP of product that we just signed. So depending on when this podcast is coming out, he will hopefully be on board. And he was the VP of the Business Spend uh, Intelligence Network at SAP. And what's super interesting is that he was trying to do very similar within SAP to, to consolidate all these different platforms. But the big challenge is how do you get data in all these platforms, especially when you don't necessarily have data rights and each of these different agreements sits with different businesses across multiple companies. And so I think he saw the opportunity to join us to be able to do this for the world. We also hired a CTO last year. So our first CTO was not the CTO. And we knew this, that post 30 employees, more executive, more investors, that was just not his thing. Like he loved to build from you know the ground up and then move on. And so we found a CTO last year that had this really strong uh, combination of someone who came from engineering, also studied neural networks before ML was even a thing, and then was building AI solutions for large enterprise for supply chain specifically, Because if you go all engineering, you're going to go workflow, you're going to go, you're going to want to buy data from other people and aggregate that data. If you are all AI, you're, you know, the danger is to be more too academic and not focusing on the value to the customer and how, and as you probably know, AI is a tiny little component of a big architecture. And so uh, we need to have that combination. So Arnold made a huge difference in joining us. And since we raised Series B, which was right before the holidays, luckily on timing, uh, we raised 50 million US. Uh, We've quadrupled the size of our engineering team and we've uh, data team, product teams. 
And so now we have you know, the mandate to make the platform like massively scalable. So ingest infinite amount of data pipeline and then be able to distribute selected data based on quality of data uh, through APIs across anything. If a client wants to put in a no-code, low-code, whatever, you know, or a data cloud or their legacy system, as long as it's accessible, uh, they're going to be able to do that through APIs. Let's dive into that team then you're you're mentioning. How how did you go about building that team and, you know, um, perhaps historically, but I think I'm interested in, you know, what you looked for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you. And I've heard recently, it's like you you throw like a, you you send a big, big wave, someone will either surf it or they'll drown. (laughs) And it's hard to know what they're going to do. And so we've definitely taken chances on people that were probably the right fit at the time, right? Because each stage requires a different type of skill set and each milestone will attract a different type of talent. Like, I don't know that we would have been able to attract Arnold three years ago, right? Because of the validation that we had yet was probably not, or, or the budget that he needed to build the solutions that we're building. We were nowhere near close to the level of spend that we're having now in this, in this R&D team. And so I think everybody has sort of a stage and some people can ride with you. And I think it's important to identify that as fast as possible. Uh, and the ones that are riding, you want to continue investing in them. And even though they make mistakes, it's part of the game as long as they learn and they're able to see the path forward and, and have the autonomy and have the leadership skills to be able to do that. It's so rewarding to see that those people that I've grown with now part of this journey. And there's other people, it just, it, you know, there's a time and it doesn't work and that's fine. And it, it's harder when they don't see it, but when you can work together on saying like, Hey, maybe this is not the right phase anymore, or maybe it's not the right fit for the stage that we're going into. Um, then you want to part ways in a way that they will buy their options and they will keep cheering for us and keep advocating. And part of, you know, this, um, this community of teal bookers that will be alumni and always have been proud to have worked here at some point in time. So yeah, I think hiring practices is super important. Um, I can't stress enough sort of hire slow, fire fast. It's true. We didn't really live by that for a long time. And I think it hurt us. We hired quickly. And sometimes we hired the people that one person was there and we hired that person versus going through a proper process, either because of time or for whatever reason. And those people have not often worked out when we go through a more diligent process and making sure that we hired the best person for that role that can scale with us at least for the next, you know, couple of years, I think we've been more successful there, but a lot of trials and error. And, um, I have not built this alone. This has been a journey now and a lot of people have contributed to it in, in many, many ways. Let's flip to scalability. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or have you been fighting this as you've grown? You know, as I mentioned earlier, scalability can be team, it can be technology. Also, you take it where you want to take it. The intention, right, to becoming more efficient over time is always there, especially when you're building a company with the, with the potential that we have and the TAM that we have. It's so important to become more efficient. It's less obvious when you're executing on it um, because especially as a first-time tech founder, I don't think I fully appreciated how quickly things rotate from from one function to another right you're so focused on finding product market fit and figuring out your go-to market strategy that's all you're focused on and when you start winning customers then you start looking at your cs team right and then you're like 
oh God, we have to scale there. And if you don't do it fast enough, and it's hard to do fast enough when you don't have as many customers, right? Because you don't really know how to build the efficiencies. Then you have more customers in your platform and suddenly they're picking at things and finding things that no one found before. So now it puts stress on product to make sure that we're delivering on the promised value and that we're innovating fast enough to where customers want us to go while directing customers on where they need to go because they've never bought this thing before. And then you put stress on our technology because suddenly like, you know, and I've heard this so many times as you, the rebuilt every time you hit a certain type of scale, it's so important to keep the technology um, to scale. And, and I, I've never, I don't think I've heard anyone that's, you know, the same platform they built from day one is the same that has continued through their journey. And so what we've done, I think success with that my team led recently is just doing it bottoms up lead to cash model that we can now all look at and see where we have bottlenecks. And ideally we can predict those bottlenecks and we can provide assumptions on some of those potential bottlenecks so that we can start validating and moving faster. But that, that took us probably a bit too long, frankly, to uh, get to that state. And so any early ways, especially when your, your, your lead to cash is not as complex as it is today for us, you know, you can add complexity as long as it's going faster around that triangle. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I'm proud of the people we attracted. Like I was in a room recently on the initial tech deliverables of this new generation of our platform. And I was just blown away. Like the people that are here all working together to solve this problem that I saw 16 years ago. And they're all so committed and so passionate and they're so much smarter than I am. <laughs> it's like the puzzle and the people that are in the front line selling or working with our customers to drive more value. That's really special. This is not just me anymore. The accountability to our people, to our shareholders, to our customers, to my family. Frankly, it's been seven years of a lot of sacrifices. I think there's a lot of work to do ahead of us. So, you know, people are like, oh, congratulations on all your successes. And I'm like, well, it's not successful yet. Right. And so I don't know when you get satisfied. I don't think you ever potentially get satisfied because there's always grenades, as another founder calls it. Yeah, it's uh, I feel like we're still very much in the beginning of our journey. So let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. We hired someone that I, I felt knew the space to take care of our customers. So I hired a procurement executive with very strong operational experience and had never built CS before. And I thought that, you know, because of that, we would have more empathy for what our customers are trying to achieve and we'd be able to focus on the ROI and the use cases and drive, you know, more value. I think when you're not coming from a technology side and always looking at efficiencies and how can you automate certain things, it really created uh, one, we became, that team became very reactive and defensive on our data and our customers start pointing at little things that were not perfect versus talking about the greater value they're getting. Also, when we implement uh, our customers and we, we, we load these large files, we didn't, we didn't know that there was a lot of manual work in the early days being done by one person. <laughs> On paper, it looked great, right? On the slides, it looked great. It didn't stop us from fundraising and having customers being strong referrals. But that's when we hit that critical mass of getting more customers to that one person that was manipulating our data left. And then we realized how much was being done manually. 
And that could have killed us. And it was not obvious. It's not like someone raised a flag. It's sort of like, hey, there's something that's going on here because people, some people will, will be more protective. They won't admit to necessarily the mistakes or they see that they're going to solve it eventually. Or, And so it was not easy to see what was going on. I think asking the why and taking the time to talk to different people, it was it was really obvious that we had the wrong skill set. We probably had the wrong leadership team. We had the wrong mindset. And then we hadn't automate this process that was really critical for us to scale. And the second mistake I made is I didn't make the change fast enough, right? I, I decided to invest and see if we could get to a better state over a quarter. But doing that made it worse for the person. It made it worse for us. And we lost three months. That was a very costly mistake that could have actually cost, you know, our reputation, our business, customers, definitely really hard on the morale for those teams. And luckily now we're in a much, much better spot. But I wish we had caught that earlier and, and acted on it earlier versus, you know, waited. So let's switch to you, Stephanie. Who influences the way that you work? Name someone you look up to or, or multiple persons that you look up to and why? I try to I try to not compare myself to other people. I remember in the early days I was more easily impressed with other founders. Like I would meet founders that had raised. I remember this guy raised forty million dollars, and I thought like, wow, he's made it. Like I went and visited this office. It was this massive office overlooking the water. Another founder was very like the the golden child uh, in our community. Of you know he'd raised sixty million dollars and. What I realized as those companies may have not exited in a way that was favorable or shut down altogether, closed their doors, or interviewing people from companies I looked up to and, you know, learning that they have a, a culture that's really destructive and, and toxic, I sort of just start leaning more on my instincts and realizing that what we're doing is actually, we're doing the right things and we're building the right type of culture and we're fiscally responsible and I'm inspired by my kids a lot because they simplify things and they're wiser than us because they're little and they see things and they call things out and they don't have filters. And I love that about them. And so, yeah, there's a lot of people like I, I have a long list of people that inspire me, but the general theme is just trusting my instincts and, and do what's right for the company and what's right for me and uh, my family. Well, well, last question, Stephanie. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Oh, I would not give them advice. I would just listen and smile and ask how I can help. You know, if they want my advice, I can share my, my perspective. But I always tell other entrepreneurs that my journey will be different than your journey. We're, we're going to face some similar challenges. And when you get to that, you just don't know what is going to be around the corner yet. But when you do face or you need to get out of your own head, um, give me a call. And then when you're, you're trying to navigate some tough discussion, I can help you sort through it just by asking questions. And But you usually know the answer. It's just usually you just need someone else to listen and listen talking you out loud. And usually the answers come. <laughs> so, yeah, you don't want you never want to take that that fire. I remember there's one person I met in my early, early days of Tealbook. I was sitting in a hotel and this guy come and start talking to me and and he was in my space he was in in the procurement world and he said something like it's a dumb idea It'll never work i don't see how there's a need for this and it was just like so upsetting 
to me that someone would say something like that, even if you believe that, like, why would you try to crush my, my dreams? I don't know. I still like this. He's a really high up executive and we have never crossed path again. And maybe it's a way to motivate someone, but, and people are quick to want to see kind of the negative side. Anyway, so I would just be like, Hey, smiling for them. Enjoy the, the journey. This is the ride of your life. Learn as much as possible. Trust your instincts. And when you need help or you need someone to talk to, just give me a call. That's great advice. I love that. Well, Stephanie, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Teal Book. Yeah, thank you for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Coat Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.